So my dad uh, was an avid sportsman, and he loved to do pretty much anything outdoors. And part of that was actually climbing mountains. And he loved both the exercise, and if you've ever climbed mountains, that sort of sense of expansiveness that you get on the summit. And uh, one of his favorite mountains in New Hampshire was Mount Chikorua, which is near Center Sandwich in the uh, White Mountain Range. And it's one of the more popular mountains, um, and my dad loved it, especially uh, because there was some Native American lure surrounding it, and it was a relatively common and easy hike until you get to the summit. And uh, he had climbed it on numerous occasions. Now, this would be a bit of a heartfelt anecdote if I could stop there, but my dad never stopped there. There was always a little extra. And um, when he was in his 20s, he decided that he wanted to bring home the top of the mountain with him. And so he took two large pieces of stone from the summit of Mount Chikorowa and carried those back down to our house. Um, and, you know, I'm guessing that day that Mount Chikorowa lost a slight amount of elevation uh, on the record books. And years later, we would say to my dad, Dad, if everybody who climbed the mountain took home part of the mountain, then there would be no mountain. And with an impish grin, he would say, yeah, but I got the top. <laughs> now, Jesus finds himself today climbing a mountain. And unlike my dad, he does not try to take part of the mountain down with him but he does take something away. And every year in the second Sunday of Lent, we hear this story of Jesus's transfiguration and the Choctaw elder and Episcopalian priest, Stephen Charleston, who I've mentioned before, says that Jesus had four vision quests during his life. And this was his second vision quest, going up the mountain. And we heard about his first one last week, going into the wilderness. And I think that's a beautiful image for us for Lent of going on a vision quest where we venture into our inner wilderness and engage in the disciplines of prayer, fasting, and generosity for 40 days in order to find greater insight, greater wisdom, direction, and connection along the way. Now, there are a lot of themes that we could pull from today's readings, but I want to focus on two that stood out for me. And one is encouragement, and the other is coming down from the mountain. Now, our story today comes uh, from Mark chapter 9, which is really right in the middle of the Gospel of Mark. And it's my guess, along with some other scripture scholars, that at this point in his life, Jesus was actually very tired. And I mean soul tired. And some of you understand that. It's the kind of tired that more sleep doesn't fix. And in the chapter right before our reading today, Jesus has to deal with some of his closest friends really having no idea who he is or what he's here to do. And furthermore, he sees the writing on the wall at this point about the authorities plotting against him and wanting to do him harm. So he takes three close friends up the mountain, trying to get a little perspective, trying to find some answers or direction. In an experience we can only describe as mystical, he is visited by his ancestors, Moses and Elijah, who engage him in conversation. These are people who knew struggle. These are people who knew hardship. These are people who knew discouragement. And I suspect they tended to Jesus that day. Now, I kind of envision them sort of like being out of a scene from Rocky, where it's been a really tough round, and Rocky comes back to his corner, and the coach is massaging his shoulders, going like, it's okay, buddy. It's okay. Get back in there. You got this. And then everyone hears this voice saying, this is my beloved. Now, we're not quite sure what happened to Jesus and the disciples up there, 
All we know is it changed, encouraged, and sustained them. Now, I love the word encouragement. The dictionary definition is about giving someone hope or uplift, but I love its root word from the French corps, which means heart. When we encourage someone, we speak from our heart to their heart. My friend and mentor, Ched Myers, often reminds people of a lesson he learned a long time ago at Jonah House, which is a famous Catholic worker house in Baltimore. And on a sign in their living room, it said, the most apostolic duty of all is to keep one another's courage up. The most apostolic duty of all is to keep one another's courage up. My guess is that it was very meaningful to Jesus that his three friends said yes to his invitation to go with him. It was probably comforting that he didn't have to go up the mountain alone at this point in his life. And that is one way how we can be there for each other, is to accept the invitations of accompaniment when people offer it to us. I would imagine it was also quite special for Jesus that his ancestors showed up for him, providing him comfort and reassurance. It's my belief that our ancestors wish to do that for us as well. I would ask us all to pause right now just for a moment. Call to mind someone who encouraged you along the way. Maybe it's something related to what you're going through right now. Maybe they saw you through a former hard time. But who was there for you? And I would invite you, if you are able to this week somehow, tell them of your appreciation for what and what difference it made for you. If they already know, tell them again. If they have passed on, talk to them anyway. I really don't know if we can ever hear enough the impact that we have on other people. Now, I have found that sometimes our encouragement also comes from the non-human world. I have been encouraged and sustained by trees, bodies of water, animals, birds, mountains, and I found that the natural world is ever trying to encourage and sustain us if we are willing to slow down and listen. And be sure to say thanks to them as well. Now, sometimes the encouragement comes from unexpected sources. I was speaking with somebody recently who was hospitalized, and she was going through a very hard night in the hospital and just had some of those late-night doubts of, am I going to make it through? And this male nurse kept coming in throughout the night and checking on her, occasionally sitting with her and holding her hand for a few minutes. Now, in the morning, uh, the woman was feeling a little bit better, and the doc uh, was rounding to check in on everyone. And the woman said, you know, I would love to uh, say thank you personally to the nurse, uh, if you could send them in at some point. The doctor looked a little puzzled and said, actually, there were only two women working the night before, um, and that actually no male nurses worked on this floor. So the woman burst into tears in the hospital and again when she told me the story. She concluded that her helper that night was an angel who was there for her in her time of need. Encouragement can come from so many places and it is so vital. And part of our work, especially during Lent, is to make sure that we take up our apostolic duty to keep one another's courage up, especially in the days we are in. One of my favorite spiritual writers is Anne Lamott. And she says that my personal belief 
is that God looks through her Rolodex when she has a certain kind of desperate person in her care, and she assigns that person to some screwed up soul like you or me, and makes it hard for us to ignore that person's suffering. So we show up even when it's inconvenient or just awful to be there. There will be someone this week, maybe even today, who will need your encouragement and support. It might be someone you know, it might be someone who you're unfamiliar with, but they will need your heart. Be there for them as best you can. Help them become more visible in this world. Help give them heart on the journey. Now, we all know that we cannot remain on mountaintops forever. The euphoria and peak experiences inevitably fade, and sometimes it's quite hard to hold on to the spiritual insights that we get from the mountaintop. <clears throat> My wife Lynn and I help to facilitate a couples retreat every year around Valentine's Day, and it's only a 24-hour experience where couples try to reconnect with each other, uh, you know, reaffirm uh, each other and appreciation and try to remember why is it we keep doing long-term relationships? Uh, because they are hard work. But at the end of it, you know, everyone's like, oh my God, I love you. I appreciate you. You're the best. I'm so glad I'm with you. And I swear for some of us, as soon as we get into the parking lot and start going home, <laughs> the magic fades, we've forgotten everything we just did, and we get back into the thick of life again. Maybe it's like that for you at church, right? Sometimes the half-life of spiritual insights can be painfully short. Now, as part of our retreat this year, we watched a TED Talk uh, by the relationship expert Rachel Terrell, and she talks about how when we fall in love, generally the first phase, it's generally about two years, just about long enough to get us through engagement and some sort of commitment. Um, it's this sense of expansive love that we have for the other person. They can do almost no wrong. And it's called limerence. That phase is called limerence. And naturally, limerence begins to fade over time. So as a researcher, she set out to find out how can we make the euphoria last throughout the entire relationship? And do you know what she found out? You can't make it last, <clears throat> okay? It's actually, she says, only when limerence fades that we finally get to see our partner clearly for the first time. And it's on that foundation that you can build a long-term relationship. Now, I know that growing up, I was given the idea that we were supposed to keep trying to have all these mountaintop experiences, you know, one more retreat, one more book, uh, and that we were supposed to have all this special knowledge about life once we came back from them. That's not been the case for me. I've always loved the title of a brilliant book by the great American Buddhist teacher, Jack Kornfield. It's called After the Ecstasy, The Laundry. <laughs> and in the book, he reflects on, like, what happens to the Zen master when they have to come home to their messy house, the complaining partner and the kids, or go and clean the garage? Or what happens to the Christian mystic when they have to go to Wegmans because they're out of sour cream or show up at work on Monday? Stephen Charleston, who I mentioned earlier, says that these bigger-than-life experiences that we try to have through things like vision quests are not meant for us to escape from reality, but to go deeper into it. They're not necessarily there to reveal something that's hidden 
so much as to alert us to what is in plain sight. They don't give us secret wisdom, but make us reconsider what we have all, always known. If we are lucky, we get a few mountaintop experiences in life that help break us open and help us break through, providing encouragement and grounding. And I think if we're really lucky, we learn to find that in everyday life. You know, I was thinking recently in my own prayer life that I do tend to ask God quite often for significant events or breakthroughs. And I imagined God saying to me one time recently, now, what did you do with the last one that I gave you? <laughs> and generally my response is, I don't know, but I'd like another one. The student teacher, uh, I mean, the student once asked the spiritual teacher, is there anything I can do to achieve enlightenment? The teacher thought for a minute and said, no, it's about as much as you can do to make the sunrise. So the student was quite disappointed and said, yeah, but then what's the purpose of doing all these spiritual practices? The teacher said, it's to make sure you're not asleep when the sun rises. Now, for a long time, we put the focus of transfiguration on Jesus and what happened to him. But the disciples were there too. And maybe their process speaks more to our reality. Now, to be transfigured is to be changed in outward appearance, meaning that you are seen differently. Peter, James, and John got to witness Jesus differently that day. They saw his radiance and his belovedness. And it's my guess that Jesus hoped that this would enable them to more clearly see the radiance and belovedness all around them when they came down from the mountain. The Trappist monk and mystic Thomas Merton was in downtown Louisville, Kentucky in the middle of the shopping district when this insight hit him like a ton of bricks. He said, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people, that they were mine and I was theirs that we could not be alien to one another, even though we are total strangers. When all the dust settles, we don't need a mountaintop or the right piece of real estate in order to have a spiritual experience. We are having them all the time. And we don't need to go anywhere special in order to realize that we are surrounded by the beloveds of God because they too are everywhere, human and non-human. We need only cultivate the eyes of the heart so that we can see them clearly. You know, after his amazing experience on the mountain, Jesus went right back to teaching and healing. He didn't write a book. He didn't do a series of interviews. Didn't start writing a blog or make some flashy TikTok video about life hacks. And if you weren't with him on the mountaintop, you might not have known what happened to him. He just brought that newfound energy, light, and radiance to the lives of all those he encountered. May we go and do the same.